Turn, if you would, to Psalm 90, 9 Well, I hope you had a good holiday. Mine was exhausting. <laughs> we went to Colorado three weeks ago for my grandson's birthday. And then last night, daughter number five got married. So we survived that. We got to bed about two. And uh, I ran by Love Field on the way here, dropping off another daughter and her husband. And I would love to be able to tell you that now we get to rest for a week, except we are watching our two-year-old grandson for the week while his parents go to Florida. And uh, I'm helping my son move on Tuesday. And tomorrow night, my daughter and I start rehearsals for another play. So there's nothing going on at my house at all. Psalm 90 was actually not going to be my lesson today. I went through several different answers. I had an earlier psalm to do. But then for many years, not every year, but frequently enough, I would begin the new year by asking you to turn to the table of contents, and I would actually teach through the whole Bible. I did that for really just one reason, and that was to encourage you during the year to read through the Bible. I have done it on several occasions, not every year, but on several occasions, and it is very encouraging to see all of the Scripture and how it all fits together. And I do it to encourage you because I know what's going to happen. You're going to read Genesis, rah, rah. You're going to do Exodus, okay, that's okay. You get to Leviticus and you go, oh shoot, why am I reading this? And in Numbers, you just fall apart. And that's where most people end their read through the Bible in a year. I will encourage you to make it through Leviticus and Numbers and then keep going. Uh, I have been known, I hate to admit this, I have been known to find a paraphrased version to read numbers, okay? Just, that's just me. We need to be in the scripture. We need to be reading the Bible. But last week, last Sunday, I went to, we went to uh, another daughter's church in Frisco, and the pastor preached on Psalm 90. And I spent the week, when I wasn't doing wedding stuff, which, by the way, was a lot of stuff, uh, thinking about Psalm 90. So today we're going to do Psalm 90. It is an interesting psalm, and there's one verse in particular right in the middle of it that kind of tells us why we're doing this. Verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. The psalm itself is very uplifting, and it's very depressing. Because it's going to talk about God, good stuff, and it's going to talk about us. And it's going to talk about the miserable life we live. Hmm, that doesn't sound very encouraging. It begins to actually sound like the book of Ecclesiastes. 
You are in this world and you are going to have a tough time of it. Now, all of us are old enough to know that life is full of tough times. Life is full of difficulties. When you're 22 or 3 years old, whatever age my daughter is, and you're getting married, you have this idea that everything's going to be great in front of you. Ha, ha, ha. We know better, right? Life is difficult. But in the midst of that difficulty, we are to pay attention to our life, pay attention to what God is doing so that we can learn wisdom. What is wisdom? Very simply put, wisdom is skillful living. To be skillful at living, we need to know how the world operates in relationship to God. There is no wisdom apart from an understanding of who God is. The fear of the Lord, we are told in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without a proper understanding of who God is, there is no wisdom for us to make it through our daily lives. So we're going to read this, and if partway through it you want to slit your wrist because it's depressing, you just have to accept that. Okay? When I teach the scripture, I acknowledge the fact that some passages are a lot more uplifting. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That was the last psalm we did last decade. We did that one. And it's very uplifting. But sometimes you read passages that we might say more accurately describe the world in which we live. So, let's start with verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Remember, the book of Psalms is a collection of songs, a poetry that could and was and has been set to music. So they're not all written by David, although a lot of them are. They were compiled at some point in history, and there are a variety of different composers, writers. And we are told that this psalm was written by Moses, and not just any Moses, Moses the man of God, as if we would be confused. But you know what? There may have been other Moses. Oh, that's the Moses that lives down the street. No, this is Moses the man of God. There are those who would dispute that Moses actually wrote this, but there is really no reason other than you just don't want him to to dispute that what it says is true. It says Moses wrote that. If that's the case, which I believe it is, this is the oldest psalm in the book because Moses was way back there and David was way up here. Okay? So this is the oldest psalm in the book of Psalms. Now, we do not know the occasion that caused this to be written. You know, when we were looking at some of the earlier psalms, sometimes it would just say a psalm of David. 
but sometimes it would say a Psalm of David on the occasion of this and explain some situation that caused, that encouraged David to write that Psalm. We don't see that here. But let me just speculate just for a moment. Moses has been living in the wilderness for 40 years. He comes back to Egypt. He leads his people out through the power of God, through the manifestations of God's power that we call the plagues. And he leads his people out. They're going to the promised land and things go bad. And all of a sudden, they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. Think about that. You've seen a map, right, of the Middle East. Israel is here. Egypt is down here. And while, yes, it would take you a while to walk there, it wouldn't take you 40 years. What does that mean? It means that area in between, they're walking in circles. Why? Because God is punishing them because of their lack of belief that prevented them from thinking they could enter the promised land that God had promised to them. So they're wandering around the desert, living in tents, and Moses stops and goes, wow, this life stinks. Here I am, wandering around, and people are dying all the time. In fact, God had promised that everyone who started that was over the age of 20 was not going to make it into the promised land. There were two of them that made it into the promised land who were older than 20 when this started. Who were those two? Caleb and Joshua. Caleb was part of the group that went into the promised land, and he came back, and most of the people said, ah, we can't do it, they're tough. And Caleb said, yeah, but our God is tougher. The two of them. So, in the midst of this, I'm going to speculate, and it is speculation, by the way, because we do not know the occasion of this psalm. Moses is speculating about life in the desert and God. And here we go. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses begins with a discussion of the magnificence of God. Just look at the end of that. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is going to contrast God, who is from everlasting in the past to everlasting in the future. He is going to contrast God with humanity. And he is going to present humanity as grass. In the morning, we have dew, and life is great, and by the end of the day, under the Texas sun, we are brown, and we are burned. The contrast is the everlasting God and the temporal nature of our life. He's going to say in a moment, you're going to live 70 years, maybe 80, just out of curiosity. 
How many of you are over 80 years old? You beat the curve, okay? But what is that? What is that compared to everlasting to everlasting? I mean, it's nothing. It is nothing. You take an in, the number infinity and you take a slice out of it and what you end up with is a slice compared to eternity. That's where we're going to head in just a moment. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, remember, you're living in a tent in the middle of the desert, and you've been living in this tent for years. And before you were in the tent, you were living in Egypt in bondage. Where is your home? Where is your real dwelling place. And Moses is telling us it's not here. It's not in this tent. It is not in that bondage that we were in in Egypt. God himself is our dwelling place. What does it mean that God is our dwelling place? What is a dwelling place? It's a place that you're at home. It's a place that you belong. It's a place where those you love are. And Moses is saying, it's not the tent, it's not the bondage, it's God himself. Remember when we were talking about those psalms last decade? Those psalms that David would say, God, you are my sanctuary where David would be running from people and he would find some place safe, some place he could rest in safety, some physical location. But he knew the physical location was not the true sanctuary. The true sanctuary was God himself. And Moses is telling not only is God our sanctuary, he is our dwelling place. He is the place that we are to find rest. You are our dwelling place. Before the mountains were brought forth, as I said, three weeks ago, I was in Colorado. What do they have in Colorado? Mountains. Now, at this point, you can believe we're not going to debate it. You can believe, if you want to, that those mountains were formed over millions and millions of years through some evolutionary process, or you can believe that those mountains were created by God. Okay? We'll talk about that in the next sentence. Either way, either way, the mountains have been there longer than you and longer than me. But guess what? They haven't been there longer than God. Before that mountain existed, God existed. Not only that, God was our dwelling, but wait, I wasn't there. That's true, but God was. That's what we're trying to see in these first two verses. God has been there 
before whatever it is you want to envision as the longest thing that has ever existed. And Moses would sit there and go, see that mountain over there? That mountain is big. And there are mountains around there. Not the Rocky Mountains, but there's mountains around there. Before that mountain existed, God was here. God was our dwelling place before that. The contrast we're seeing. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. What do I believe? I believe that God spoke and the world came into existence. That's what I believe. One day there was nothing, then there was something, and then out of that something, God made us. Now, what was going on before that? Well, we weren't here to know. But guess what? God was here. God is everlasting to everlasting. I've told you in here before, right? I think it was Augustine. They asked him the question, what was God doing before the earth was formed? I don't really like this answer, but it's a good answer. He was creating hell for people who ask too many questions. <laughs> I don't believe that. You are free to ask any question you want. But it's a great comment. Teach me to number my days that I may have wisdom. What is the first step toward having wisdom? Understanding that God was back there and he's going to be up there and we are insignificant to him. Do you remember the song we just sang just a moment ago? where it comments, and they've actually changed the words on it in modern hymnals, because you and I don't like calling ourselves worms. <laughs> For such a worm as I. But wisdom is understanding the everlasting nature of God. Now, let me just ask a simple question. God has existed from eternity past to eternity future, and here we show up one day, and we're going to tell God how to run his universe. Now, you've seen this happen. You don't know that you've seen this happen, but you have seen this happen. Every one of you, at some point in your life, had some teenage, snotty-nosed kid come up to you and try to explain to you how the world really works. Take that and multiply it by the largest number you can imagine. And that's us going to God as the snotty-nosed teenager going, God, let me tell you how the world works. And God is sitting there going, I was there before that mountain came into existence. I'm going to be there after that mountain ceases to exist. And you're going to tell me how the world works? Why don't you go back and develop a little humility? You want some humility? 
Let's keep reading. <laughs> you return man to dust. Shall we just stop there and go home? From everlasting to everlasting, God exists, and you are going to turn back to dust unless the Lord returns. Unless the Lord returns, you're going to return back to dust. Back to the substance from which God formed Adam, that's going to be you. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years in your sight, God, is like a blink. My daughter got married last night. Did I mention that? <laughs> My wife has spent six months getting ready for this event. And we spent hours preparing things. And we got things ready. And we decorated this place. And you know what? It's all over. <laughs> like a blink. <coughs> That's how God looks at a thousand years. Somebody tell me. What was happening a thousand years ago in the United States? Wait, there was no United States. Oh, wait, there were Native Americans living here. <coughs> it's a blink. The things that you and I think are so important and take so much time and energy, God looks at it and he goes, ah, there was another thousand years. Ah, there was another thousand. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. You are the guard and you are assigned to watch the gate for a particular period of time, usually maybe four hours. That was your watch. And guess what? You do it and it's over. Hi. You start over. I will, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll be better the second time. <laughs> you sweep them away with, as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and the evening it fades and withers. God, everlasting to everlasting. You, me, all of us, we are but grass. I told you we were going to work on your humility. What have I said before in here? The number one principle, there is a God and you're not it. But we begin to think that we are so important. Let me let you in on a secret. This is kind of cheating by stepping out of it. You are important. But the only reason you are important is because God has given you value. We're going to see this not here. 
We're going to see this in the New Testament, although it is described in the Old Testament. That we are of infinite value, but only because of what God has done for us. We being created in the image of God. We being redeemed by the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have value, but in and of yourself, you're just grass. So, let's take our pride and let's start rubbing it down until we begin to, begin to understand that God is everlasting and we're not. Well, aren't we going to exist forever? Yes. Why? Because God has given that to us. Not because of anything inherent in you and me. So if you did, if you did believe that you and I were the product of an evolutionary process, that we are just another animal, that we are just another thing, then yes, we come into existence and we die and we become dust and that's the end of the story. Wisdom is learning our position relative to God. And there is no place for pride in that relationship. If you begin to think, I'm pretty hot stuff. God is lucky to have me on his team. He'll blink and a thousand years will be gone. And guess what? If the Lord does not return, I'm just speculating here. In a thousand years, nobody's going to know who you are or were. I've told you in here before. I have great memories of my father. Lots of them. I have memories of my grandfather. Lots of them. His father. His father, I think I met one time. His father, not a clue. His father, he's some name in a book. His father, I'm not even sure. You get the picture, right? I don't want to depress you. I want you to learn wisdom. I want you to learn that God is everlasting to everlasting. And you're going to wake up in the morning and the dew is going to be on the grass and it's all going to be so refreshing. And at the end of the day, under the Texas sun, it's going to be brown. Now, that's the easy part. Let's go to the next part of it. For we, that would be us, all of humanity, are brought to an end by your anger, your being God. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For our, all our days pass away under your wrath. 
we bring our years to an end with a sigh. If it wasn't bad enough that all you are is a created being that is here for a moment, if that wasn't bad enough, you're also an object of God's wrath. Now, why do bad things happen in this world? The easy answer, sin. Now, we need to be very, very careful. Unless God has appointed you as a prophet, and I will tell you, he has not appointed me a prophet. Don't ever start speculating and trying to connect the dots between this bad event and this sin. Because then you get into the problem of saying, okay, those people at that church sin more than us, so that happened to them and not to us. No! Sin permeates the created world. The world is not as the world was meant to be. All of us have sinned. And sometimes God demonstrates that to us immediately. Sometimes he delays his wrath. Sometimes for reasons we cannot understand. God punishes people quick or he punishes them slow, or he doesn't punish them and they think they get away. No. But the scripture says, not only are we finite created beings, we are also finite created beings who have sinned against the God who created us. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Don't ever believe that you can stand there in the presence of a holy God and say, I did a pretty good thing in my life, you know? Yeah, I made a few mistakes back there, but if you look at the curve, God, I'm over a 70. I'm a good C. I get into heaven, right? No. There's only one criteria for getting into heaven, and that is perfection. And guess what? If you thought you were hot stuff because you were a created being, you're not. And if you thought you were hot stuff because you were better than your neighbor, you're not. Why do we think that? Why is it that when we see someone falling into some grievous, very public sin, we look there and go, ha, I'm glad I'm better than they are. I know why. It's our pride. We really, really want to think that somehow we are worthy of all the adulation. And guess what? God looks at us and by nature, we are objects of God's wrath. I didn't really want to do this, but let's cheat again, okay? 
The gospel message is not that we are pretty good people. I'm okay, you're okay, God's going to let us in because we're all okay. No. The gospel message is that we are objects of God's wrath, but that God, by sending his son as the payment for that sin, has given us the righteousness of Christ. So while we are the objects of his wrath, that wrath has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is not that you're a good person. The gospel is that you serve a great God who paid the penalty for that sin. Let's look at this. For we are brought to an end by your anger. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam, Eve, walking around the garden, having a great time. They've been given a job to do. They have been given the job to tend the garden. Now, here's back to speculation. What would have happened if Adam and Eve had not sinned? I believe that garden would have grown and grown and grown and eventually covered the entire planet. Their children and those children's children would have tended the garden and it would have been magnificent. And by the way, those children would have been born <sighs> with no pain. That's what would have happened. But it didn't. Why? They looked at the command of God and they chose to do something else. And by doing so, they have set the standard for each of us whereby we look at the word of God. I mean, you might, just might, be able to think that a small child doesn't know what right from wrong. If you think that, you need to spend more time with a grandson or a great-grandson who will look at the object and you tell them no and they will look at you and they will look at the object and they will head toward the object. Why? Because we're sinners. We are by nature's objects of God's wrath. For we are brought to an end by your anger. What ended that beautiful garden that Adam and Eve were in, sin. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Do not hold up your hand. How many of you have sins that you think you're hiding from everybody else? I do. <clears throat> Wait, we're not holding hands up, right? Forget what I just said. Guess what? You're not hiding squat from God. 
Teach me to my, number my days so that I can learn wisdom. What is wisdom? Knowing that God is from everlasting to everlasting. Knowing that God knows my secret sin. I believe I can hide it. I believe I can get rid of it. I believe I can have that bitterness in my heart. I believe I can be angry and hide it from you. And God looks at that and says, here, let me put it on the whiteboard for you. Let me put it on the chalkboard. Let me put it on a PowerPoint presentation. Let me show you what I know about you, and what I know about you is everything. Shall we step outside of it one more time? What is the gospel? God sending Jesus to pay the penalty for that sin. Even the one that you think you're hiding. It's always been interesting. The idea that if I go to God and I confess my sin... He's going to be shocked, and he's going to reject me. I mean, we believe that about each other at times, right? If I really told you what I really thought, you would go, huh, what's he doing standing up there? And we think that about God, and we don't realize that God already knows. To me, it's interesting Adam and Eve fall, they eat the fruit, they understand the fact that they're naked, they get some leaves and try to cover themselves up, and God shows up. And God says, what's going on, Adam? You've been there before, right? When you had a small child or a small grandchild and you walk into the room and the flower pot is broken on the floor, and you go, what happened? Now, you know what happened. There's no doubt in your mind what happened. But you want to see if they will confess and acknowledge what happened. And what do they do? It's their fault. What did Adam do? It's her fault. What did Eve do? It's that snake's fault. And guess what we've been doing ever since? It's somebody else's fault. It couldn't possibly be mine. For all our days pass under your wrath. You bring the years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life or 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Many of you have broken that curve. Rah, rah. Some of you will make it to 90. How many 90s do we have in here? Okay. Some of you might make it to 100. We got any 100s in here? Nope. You're not going to make it to 120. I know. They're promising all kinds of new drugs and new parts and we can replace things and keep you, I don't know. What is the point? Life is brief. Where did we start? God, everlasting to everlasting. What percentage of infinity is 
70. Zero. It's not even a round-off error. It's just zero. What are we after? Wisdom. I hate to read the next sentence. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Is this an optimistic view of life? <laughs> is this a realistic view of life? Is this a view of life that allows us to begin, to begin to obtain wisdom? If I believe that all of life is required to configure itself to meet my every need, then I am going to be horribly disappointed in life. When my 10-month-old grandson is walking around the furniture, he doesn't really walk yet, but he can walk around the furniture, he has the expectation that when he falls, somebody's going to be there to catch him. Why? Because that's the experience that he's had. But he is going to learn, <laughs> that it's going to be painful. That there are going to be times when he does not get his way. There are going to be times of discomfort. There's going to be times of toil and trouble. We are all old enough to know that. We are all old enough to know that life is full of difficulties. You ready for this? Adam and Eve created in the perfect garden. That is the way the world was supposed to be until sin entered the world. Now, all of creation groans, we're told in Romans. It groans because it knows this isn't the way the world is meant to be. Can we step outside one more time? The gospel. God sent Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. We live in this world of difficulties, so that we can learn wisdom, so that we begin to be like Paul and say, if I live, great, I get to keep serving. If I don't live, even greater, because I get to go out of this world of toil and trouble. Paul got beat up, he got stoned, he got whipped, he got shipwrecked. Whatever you have, he had it worse. But he had learned wisdom. He had learned to be content. He had learned to do, but if God took him home, great. That's the right answer. This world was never meant 
to be our final resting place. First off, this world physically was never meant to be that. But secondly, where did we start? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. We were never, ever meant to dwell apart from God. We just weren't. And if God allowed you to be totally happy, you might begin to think, this is pretty good, I'll just stay here. And guess what? You would not learn wisdom. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers the power? All he's asking here is who is thinking about this? Who is thinking about God's wrath? Who is thinking about what it means to fear God? Guess what? Next verse. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Who considers the power of the anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Who considers it? The one who is developing a heart of wisdom. You ready for this? This is simple. There is no wisdom apart from God. There are lots of really, really smart people. There really are who are unbelievers. I know I have met them. And some of them are the nicest people in the world. You can be as smart as you can imagine. There are a lot of people who, from outward appearances, seem to be living good, nice, kind lives. But guess what? If I do not understand that from the everlasting past to everlasting future, God is in charge of everything, I am going to be playing the wrong game. I just am. I am going to be making the wrong moves. I'm going to begin to think that success in this life will allow people of the next generation to remember me and the next generation and the next generation. And one of these days, God's going to blink and it'll be a thousand years and nobody will know who you are. Wisdom comes from reflecting on God and the fear of God. Teach us to number our days. Back to our math, right? God is everlasting to everlasting. Infinity that direction, infinity that direction. Okay? You start counting, and I'll tell you when you get to infinity. I was a math major. You're not going to get there. Why? Because you know, right, there's always one more number. And there's always a number after that. And there's always a number. In fact, there's an infinity of numbers past whatever number it is that you end up with. I had a long argument with my brother one time because he had read in this book. And uh, not being a math major, he knew this couldn't possibly be true. The integers are the counting numbers, right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Are there more integers or are there more even integers? Now, you would think 
there's got to be twice as many integers as there are even integers, right? Because you're only counting half of them. Guess what? There's exactly the same number, an infinity. There are. So, try counting everlasting to everlasting and you're not going to make it. Guess what? I can count the years of your life. One of these days, not soon I hope, I'm optimistic, we're going to have your funeral or my funeral. And somebody's going to say, oh, he lived 96 years, 100 years, 63 years, whatever it is, guess what? You can count that number. I don't care how big it is. You can count it. What did we say about everlasting to everlasting? Can't be counted. Your life and my life. So I am 62. I will be 63 this year. Next year I'll be 64. Here's the question. Having acknowledged, acknowledged the fact that my life is finite on this earth, in this body, how am I going to live it? What am I going to do tomorrow? Because I recognize that God is everlasting to everlasting, and I'm sitting here in this little insignificant slice. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 62, 63. I could count it pretty quickly. How am I going to live my life? Let me tell you the right answer. Are you ready for this? God, how should I live my life? Everlasting to everlasting, speaking to us as finite human beings, and we ask God, how should we live our lives? That is wisdom. How do we learn that? Well, the place to start, the Word of God. God has told us not everything that we want to know. I've read the Bible enough to know that there's lots of questions I'd love to know the answer to, but I don't know. But he has given us everything necessary to live a life of wisdom. As long as we keep the eternal perspective for God and acknowledge the finite perspective of our own individual lives. Number your days so that you may develop a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom means it's part of your being. It's who you are. It's not that you accidentally do something right every once in a while. It becomes part of your being. That is learning a heart of wisdom. Let's read the rest of this. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. 
That's a great verse. Satisfy in the morning with your steadfast love that may, we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. That's a fascinating sentence. Make us glad for all the days that you have afflicted us. Hmm. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the works of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the works of our hands. We are here for a finite amount of time, and that hand is going to do something. What is that hand going to do? It can do what I want it to do, or I, through wisdom, can learn to use that hand to do what God would have me to do. What he's praying to God is, God, help me to do what you would have me to do so that the works of my hand will have meaning and purpose. Everlasting to everlasting, us, this tiny sliver, and the only reason we will have an impact in this world is if we're doing the work of God. So Moses prays to God. Here I am, wandering around this wretched desert with all these wretched people. They are dropping like flies, and guess what? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. That is the beginning of wisdom. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your word so that we could learn wisdom. I pray, Lord, that each of us would learn, learn who you are and who we are. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.